0: Are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field: sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius podcast with Richard Jacobs.
1: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast. Uh, my guest today, he's been he's been here twice before. Very, very interesting guy in the area of uh, virology, Luis Villarreal. He's a professor emeritus. Um, He studied molecular biology and biochemistry, uh, part of the School of Biological Sciences, the founding director of the Center for Virus Research at uh, University of California, Irvine. So today, uh, he's here to help uh, answer some of the questions in the virus book that I'm putting together. So Luis, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me.
2: Glad to be here.
1: Yeah, even though um, you know, you're a professor emeritus, what what's been um, the focus of your research, you know, in viruses throughout the years?
2: Well, I, virology was uh, was something I backed into. Actually, uh, I started my career without any any uh, deep objectives in terms of uh, where I was going. Only that I was interested in science. And uh, when I first started coming out of East LA, I was just uh, wanting to get a job. Doing something scientific, so I was. I started training as a medical technologist at a junior college, but within a year that got very dull, um, and I transferred to uh, Cal State University in Los Angeles and changed my major to uh, biochemistry, and uh, that required me to redo a lot of the courses that I had already taken, which was a rather annoying aspect of that. But mm-hmm. Uh, It seemed worthwhile at the time, so I did, and I was able to succeed at that. Uh, But by the time I was completing my training in biochemistry, uh, I took a class in advanced biochemistry, uh, a book that had just come out at the time by Leninger, and it had an image. They were talking about the complicated protein structures and crystals. And one of the images my professor put up at the time was a, a crystalline array of a an RNA virus in the cytoplasm of an infected cell, I think it was uh, one of the insect transmitted viruses. I don't remember St. Louis, one of those guys, I'm not sure which exactly. But anyway, at the time, I was very intrigued at the interface between life and chemistry. And seeing this crystal just, in a sense, crystallized in my mind that the viruses were that junction, were the interface between life and chemistry. They were chemical entities, yet they had all these characteristics of life. And that sort of just started me on my way as a undergraduate, and then into graduate school, into
1: biology and postdoc, and so forth.
2: Uh, I've been been uh, in that area ever since. Okay.
1: Well, uh, speaking of the interface of life and chemistry, um, you know, do you think viruses are alive, and and why or why not? Are they contingently alive? Are they alive? What's what's your thoughts?
2: well you know that question is a lot more complicated than it seems it sounds so straightforward but just the definition of life is not something that's ever been completely resolved Uh, and there's one characteristic of life that i've come to accept which i guess others are coming to accept that really isn't in the classical definitions including the one that uh, um, you know various astrobiologists use and that has to do with the importance and essential nature of communication for biological entities. Uh, And what that leads to is uh, one of the fundamental uh, ways of communicating meaningful biological information that is context-correct and is able to uh, include uh, really rather sort of meaningful uh, code, not just errors that happen to be useful. And these are what the viruses provide. So once you accept the concept that communication is a fundamental uh, necessity and character of life. And then you start to realize that viruses have always provided uh, one of the more important or crucial aspects of communication into all living entities, and uh, including at the very origins of life. So this is a, a feature that sort of, you get back to the point of the definition of life. Uh, if you include that, then what you see is that viruses are sort of this epi, phenomenon of life that's essential, but in and of itself uh, are not necessarily uh, meet all the criteria of a living entity because they can be crystallized, they can be dead as a doorknob, they can be um, you know a chemical uh, in every sense of the word, Uh, but at the same time, once they get into a system of life, their communication functions are expressed and they they elicit all the characteristics of a living entity. So they kind of have a borrowed life or a transient life that's state dependent so they transition basically from a inert state to a living state and so that very first insight i had that got me interested in virology seems to still apply
1: yeah if i think about a uh, you know a tree that came from a seed you know if i if i experienced trees most of my time as seeds i only saw a tree every once in a while i may think oh trees are just kind of contingent contingently alive you know when they're in the right soil with moisture right. and all that sunlight then they 're alive, otherwise, for the most part they 're not and I wonder if that's if people see viruses that way, they see them mostly in the variant stage or contemplate them that way, and therefore they think they 're not really alive yeah, uh,
2: on top of that there 's even deeper uh, and more historic uh, problems with thinking about a virus and because it 's derived from uh, something that's toxic, something that's poisonous. Basically, it's derived from an entity that causes harm and damage to its host. It's a disease-causing entity. That's how we think about them. At least that's how they came to our attention. And that's not something we can ignore because they, they really are consequential to the health of all living organisms. What, what you don't think, that, think of them as is seeds or as communication entities or as uh, the, sort of the carriers of meaningful communication that is completely inapparent. But when you start looking into the genomes of all living entities, you see massive amounts of virus-derived information is is present pretty much in every lineage of life. But it's all peculiar. What you see in one lineage of life is quite distinct from what you see in another. So it's species-specific. It's population-specific. It's domain. It's you know it's specific in all characteristics you choose to consider. Um, so that that is fundamentally confusing for somebody that's indoctrinated with the popular views of what a virus is to realize that really we have more viruses in our DNA than we have genes. And that just seems wrong. And that's been dismissed for some very long time because uh, the concept of selfish DNA was applied and uh, the concept of junk DNA was applied. And it was just said, this stuff is there because it, it selfishly replicates and propagates into the host but that view is starting to go away very thoroughly these days as we examine what this parasitic sequence is actually doing to the host. And we see that it's, it's expressing regulatory function to a large degree. Uh, so all the stuff we thought about junk in the old days is now the underlying sort of master controllers of regulation and development. So it's mm-hmm. really changed its position. And that's virus-derived stuff.
1: No One, one man's junk is another man's master controller. Yes, exactly.
2: Uh, but, you know, this is not something that's going to be popularly uh, seen. This is not an observation you and I are likely to make just by looking at an organism or looking at, uh, you know, the way Darwin did, just sitting down and observing living organisms. You have to be a molecular observer on a scale that uh, was really quite impossible until the last, uh, I guess, generation or so.
1: Uh, well, if I, if, if I think of a virus also as a mechanism of communication, and then I compare it to like an extracellular vesicle, you know, I don't think people would say like an EV is alive, but it contains genetic material, it can enter into cells, it can change your gene expression, it seems to have a lot of hallmarks of a virus and, you know, a bacterial plasmid as well.
2: Yeah those are all uh, they're pretty related and uh, they're interconnected and many of them are derived directly from viruses or parasitic to viruses viruses are, also have viruses of themselves the the situation becomes quite complicated as you look into it in more depth because you have what are these hyperparasites parasites of parasites uh, and viruses make defectives and the defectives in, are the, derived from the viruses themselves. They interfere with the viruses if they colonize the host and they change the whole host virus uh, trajectory. So uh, the the overall circumstance becomes exceedingly complicated um, once you start sort of putting it into a a, a system of of life. The viruses are um, just part of this matrix of parasitic entities that are interacting in networks uh, in ways that are really a lot more complicated than we've sorted out yet. So if you try to separate what a plasmid is from what a virus is, I think you miss the importance of communication and parasitization, which is what they both are, and they're frequently derived from one another and interacting with and directly affecting one another as part of the, the same parasitic milieu that makes up life.
1: Yeah, it seems to me that viruses are libraries of information. You know, they're tools that could be used by bacteria for their immunity, by our own cells. Um, They also use cells as tools. You know, they infect them and mess with their machinery and co opt them. Um, You know, I've heard of an instance of a bacteria, I guess, uh, taking some viral DNA and expressing spike proteins on its membrane and poking holes in other bacteria. Yeah, gotta use
2: them as toxins. They incorporate the, the capacity of the virus to cause harm in order to protect themselves and cause harm to other organisms. You know, this is the way we discovered a lysogenic virus back in the 1920s in that w- when you grow one strain of bacteria, back when they figured out how to grow bacteria, plates, agar plates, uh, you find sometimes that uh, an adjacent bacteria is capable of harming that bacteria because it harbors a lysogenic virus in its genome it harbors a virus which is doing nothing to the bacteria, pretty much, except providing uh, capacity to make virus and capacity to uh, infect and harm other uh, bacteria. So when you mix these two together, it's the one that's lysogenic that sort of takes out its competitors that aren't colonized by virus and it it, uh, lyses them, hence the term lysogenic. Uh, This was a very early observation, but it was never put in the context of well, what does this have to the evolutionary survival? You, you can immediately see that this the competitive advantage for being colonized by such an entity that can communicate and reach out to your competitors and harm them thoroughly, uh, that's a huge advantage. So the colonization of a virus into a host chromosome is hugely consequential. And uh, but that state is usually considered a defective state. It's because the virus isn't propagating. It's silent. It's sitting there. And we—that's that, the component of what we call junk DNA.
1: Well, what? So there's a couple of questions mixed in here. What? What governs if a virus is going to use a cell, or if the cell is going to use the virus? Like, who? Who calls the? Sh- you know, the shots and when? Well, that you get into very complicated territory when you consider
2: that relationship because it goes all different ways. There's no one answer to that. Uh, for example, right now people are worried that uh, well, maybe the. Uh, The flu vaccine or being infected with flu might be consequential to being infected by COVID-19, that they might interact or interfere or so forth. Uh, If you start to examine that issue, what is the interaction of different infectious entities on a common host, you see all kinds of complicated and sort of opposite outcomes. You do see interference. Interference was discovered when you put one virus into a cell and it triggers the innate immune system response. And that will prevent infection of lots of other viruses, not absolutely everything. Um, But uh, one virus can definitely trip up a second virus's infection and uh, basically block it from infection. Phage do that as well. So that's one outcome. But there's other outcomes in that some viruses actually tap into the interferon response and use it for their own program. So if one virus trips off the interferon response, another virus can actually utilize that for its own replication. And then you have even more complicated states, like what happened when we discovered uh, HIV was causing AIDS in humans. What came to light was that there were a lot of persistent inapparent viruses in humans that either we knew very little about or we paid little attention to and They started to reactivate as a consequence of HIV, taking out the cellular component of the immune response to HIV. And then we saw the reactivation of a variety of human herpes viruses some of which we had never seen before until that time. So you, there, there's no one outcome is what I'm saying is what happens is a whole array. And they're all consequential, but it just depends on the particular biological strategy of, of the virus and the host and how these things connect to that biological strategy. But overall, there is a protective component that's quite strong. A lot of viruses do tend to colonize their host in a way that will prevent them from being infected with the same family or type of virus but sometimes it's broader i mean the whole innate immune response uh, seems to be the product of viral colonization that's a a whole another argument that you can make that how do you acquire something as complicated as the adaptive immune system or the components of that and there's plenty of evidence
0: that virus colonization was directly involved if you like this podcast Please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So,
1: because we endogenization of viruses into us, or just colonization, uh, and case, our immunity. In this
2: case, it would be in some form of endogenization, um, but it doesn't have to be. In some cases, it's uh, it's an episomal persistence. You know, uh, right now we're all this concerned with coronaviruses and COVID nineteen, but what's seldom uh, discussed is that we have studied uh, coronaviruses for some time and in, in quite a lot of detail and in specifically the mouse hepatitis virus is the coronavirus of Mus musculus domesticus. This is the mouse, the lab mouse, right, that we have studied more than any other mammal in the planet. And uh, we know what that relationship does uh, to the, the viability of mice uh, if I go out and catch, for example, a, a wild mus musculus in my front yard, in fact, I think I may have caught one yesterday, uh, yeah. the chances are very high, not 100%, but significant, like an 80%, 90%, that it's going to be colonized with an array of persistent, inapparent uh, mouse-specific viruses, including mouse hepatitis virus, which is the mouse coronavirus. Now, we know that coronavirus... Um, if I bring that virus, that mouse that's in fact persistently and inapparently infected with that virus, into a breeding colony of mice, well, first of all, the, the veterinarian in charge would completely throw me out of the place because that's the last thing they want. This is an experiment that's been done more times. I'd oh. like to admit what happens is the reproductive capacity of the existing colony will completely collapse as a consequence of introducing these persistent apparent viruses in a wild host into the colony. That's why they very much don't want you to bring wild animals into an inbred colony of mice, is because you won't be able to breed all the other uh, lines of mice that you have in this colony. and
1: the ones and Specifically, that what's occurring to prevent this?
2: Uh, you have a whole array of things. Sometimes it's acutely disease causing so that the newborns die off. But sometimes it just has to do with the reproductive biology has been uh, interfered with in ways that haven't been fully sorted. Because you have all kinds of these viruses. Uh, I would say there are as many as 20 different uh, persistent and apparent mouse specific viruses, uh, most of which can cause these kind of reproductive problems when you bring them into into a a vivarium uh, for breeding inbred mice. So, but the point being is, the, it, again, we see it's the persistently colonized mouse that, when introduced into a population, has to compete and breed in a population of related mice that aren't uh, colonized. Uh, it's the persistent uh, version that's the winner of the breeding outcome. And uh, this is what I suspect is happening with COVID 19 in the bat. But nobody's ever done experiments like that in bat populations because they're exceedingly difficult to do. And it's the kind of thing that actually the Wuhan Virology Institute lab was attempting to do but never got around to doing anything quite like that.
1: You're saying, a, uh, a, a, for instance, a mouse could be infected with a certain virus that doesn't kill it, but um, if that mouse hangs out with other mice, that it, it, you know, if they don't have that virus in them, the virus then could, could go and infect and kill them Kill
2: them. Sometimes it does that and it depends on the particular mouse and virus we're talking about. But what it uniformly seems to do is it just prevents them from um, Thriving from reproducing and basically uh, what you end up with is only the the mice that are infected and they're exceeding once you introduce mouse hepatitis virus into vivarium. It's exceedingly difficult to get rid of. It's tenacious uh, and so they usually have to clear the place out, get rid of all the mice, sterilize the thing and start from scratch. Uh, so it's t- it's tenacious. These persistent viruses have a very uh, stable relationship and stable uh, relationship not just with the host but with the, the habitat that, you, that they go into. This COVID-19 to me is quite fascinating because it's halfway between a virulent and a persistent uh, state, which is quite unusual. Um, so it's almost as if it's adapted to human persistence but not quite uh, because it does look like it gets cleared uh, generally pretty quickly. But we do have inapparent states, and that's that's not common uh, for these uh, species that tend to jump host like this one did.
1: Well, so yeah, if um, I don't know if there's a term for this, if I get you know uh, SARS-CoV-2, if I'm the first one to get it, um, I label myself number one. Then I give it to someone; they're number two, and on and on. You know, it's it's passages through twenty people, number twenty. Yeah. What would you expect the virus well, to look like in them? Would they get less sick, more sick, what do you think that, would, the would be? That's
2: the thing is that the capacity for these persistent inapparent viruses to cause harm in other infections, it never goes away. It's an inherent selective feature that they maintain. For example, the capacity of mouse hepatitis virus to cause serious disease in mice. If I, if I go to a population that's persistently infected and showing no disease, that virus retains the capacity for causing disease in other uh, in other populations. It does not lose it with continued persistence and continued passage and i don't think that's that's going to happen with covid nineteen either
1: well what differences would you see you know what mutations what differences what phenotypic effects Well you do you get an
2: seen? adaptation and you the adaptation will go you, what, what people don't understand is uh, these viruses are they're um, undyingly dynamic in terms of their, uh, their composition of their RNAs. It's a, although you have one consensus type that can be rather stable, and that's the sort of the most average and most abundant version of the sequence, you always have uh, lots of variants, always. As soon as you passage, you generate a quasi-species that has a lot of minorities and variants. Most of these variants don't have any phenotype that we're aware of, but they're interacting with the population and uh, sometimes they interfere, sometimes they complement. They do all kinds of things uh, within the context of that population. So as it infects an individual, there already is evidence that the quasi-species is dynamic as it moves through tissue in one individual infection. For example, uh, the capacity to uh, come in through the gut, for example, and move through, say, nervous tissue in the case of mouse hepatitis virus. Uh, w- the, the reason we say this is that these experiments were done with poliovirus uh, in order to try to test the importance of uh, this quasi-species dynamic in the, in the uh, emergence of disease. And what you can do with polio, because it's a virus that we've studied an awful lot, is you can make a version of the polymerase that is high fidelity and has a very much lower error rate. And then you can make this back into a virus, and you can use it to infect the mouse and study the resulting pathology. With polio, the pathology that's particularly interesting is the neuropathology is it ascends the spinal column and gets into the central nervous system. And what was observed, which was rather amazing, is that if you had a high-fidelity polymerase, the virus was unable to really replicate very far beyond the initial site of infection. It didn't seem to be uh, adaptable. To the neurological infection and the disease that would follow, and this was well, checked. There is
1: the error correction.
2: Uh, there is no error correction in polio, and that's the difference with uh, with uh, coronaviruses. Their polymerase does seem to have um, some editing function, which is interestingly that's the target of uh, the antiviral that's currently being used. Is that component of the polymerase? So, but the, that has to do with the length of the genome. It's uh, it's of such a, it's the largest RNA plus RNA virus genome that we see are these coronaviruses. And there's a, a limitation, a sort of a theoretical limitation to the size of an RNA genome you can generate because of the fidelity problem. Uh, that you would have so much variation in a larger genome that you couldn't essentially make a complete copy of the thing without introducing lethal variants in the whole thing. So you get what's called error catastrophe is a theory that's been applied that in a sense, uh, you're limited by the fidelity of the system into the size that can be made into the number of genes it can contain. And the coronaviruses are slightly beyond this limit because they have a fidelity correcting function. So that's why uh, their genomes are significantly larger than the genomes of other uh, RNA
1: viruses. Well, I don't know if this is a good example, but you know, when I think about quasi-species, like, you know, has has there been an experiment where <clears throat> people have been able to make an isolate of of a virus where it's only one sequence and there appears to be no variation versus a, a wild type where there may be many variants and
2: you compared can, to infectivity? Well, you can't make such a thing if you use the. Um native polymerases because they just don't have the fidelity that as soon as you propagate it as a plaque it starts to generate uh, variability and diversity the only way you can do that is to clone it as a dna and then you have the machinery of dna which uh, maintains the fidelity much better than rna does and then you can have a uniform sequence uh, that you can generate into rna so that rna that gets made off of the dna template has much less variation in it than it would naturally have as, a as, say, an infection, as a quasi-species in nature. But as soon as you propagate it as a virus, it, it starts uh, generating this variation. And curious things, like with HIV, uh, for example, and some of the other RNA viruses, they can have antivirals that you can treat them with, a variety of different antivirals. And that antiviral will typically uh, lead to selection of variation of the sequence as it tries to adapt to replicate in the presence of that specific antiviral. So this means you, you, you pick up vi- uh, particular variations or mutations you would call them because these have phenotype. Uh, and then and when you take the antiviral selection off or just propagate it without that, that, um, that past experience of that population is retained as a minority in the quasi-species. So quasi-species remembers sort of what it's been through and what selections have occurred by keeping them as minorities of the quasi species. For example, the uh, poliovirus, the live poliovirus vaccine that is used so effectively to contain poliovirus in humans, has within it the pathogenic version of the virus that's capable of causing disease. But it is kept in check by the other members of the quasi species that it uh, can't outcompete. And so it's providing you with uh, sort of a glimpse of the fully pathogenic version of the virus, but it's being kept in check.
1: Well, how how is it being kept in check by competition?
2: They have an array of mechanisms by which they interact. They overwhelm, they compete, and they can even lethally compete uh, to the point of preventing uh, one particular version of the virus from from propagating uh, but to minimal levels. So you have a very complicated dynamic As you pass a quasi-species, you can actually change the fitness of the species without changing the consensus because of the minority uh, composition can be made to adapt to a particular circumstance, yet you can still maintain the same consensus sequence. All this violates the concept of the master fittest type in which all the consensus is a copy of the master fittest type and any variation or adaptation that occurs has to occur onto the uh, master fittest type or the consensus sequence. And a lot of that thinking still permeates uh, the thinking that people are applying to COVID-19 or SARS-2 uh, and not really thinking that well, you have this other more complex uh, RNA phenomenon occurring as you're passing. it. And this includes passing it in tissue and passing it from people, being in apparent in some patients and parent In others, we don't really know what the quasi-species composition is in any of these circumstances because very few people are studying it. Right now, most everyone is just looking at the consensus sequence.
1: Yeah. um, hmm. So if I think, um, I don't know, if I look at a colony of bees, you you get worker bees and drones and the queen, and there's different phenotype there, but there's cooperation and I guess some competition too. And they all act as one. Well, here's
2: an interesting thing about, here, here's the thing that my men, uh, an experiment my mentor did in the 90s, John Holland, with uh, VSB uh, quasi-species. And that is if you take a a population of the virus and you pass it from culture to culture serially, for and you generate different quasi-species every time you pass it, you isolate the quasi-species say at passage 10, and then you isolate the quasi-species at passage 50. And then you compete these things Against each other to see which quasi-species prevails. What you find is always the latest one that wins. Yet there, it's no better than by any measurement in terms of replication rate, um, uh, plaque size, any phenotype you care to measure. You actually can't see anything really better about the latest quasi-species, other than it's able to suppress and outcompete the prior quasi-species. How this relates to bees is kind of the following. If you take a bee hive and they do identify each other, uh, you, membership of that hive is a, a, a clear phenomenon because if you get a strange bee coming into the hive, they will attack it and kill it. But if you take a bee out, let the hive continue to sort of live and feed off the uh, native plants and flowers and so forth and try to reintroduce that bee later, they will usually attack it and kill it as well because it's a, it's it hasn't retained the identity of the population, which is associated with uh, chemical signals uh, uh, about uh, that derived from the, the food that they've uh, taken in. So the identity of the hive is dynamic. Um, and that's the same thing with the quasi-species, the membership and the identity and the capacity to work well in a quasi-species is a dynamic that uh, never stops, even though it doesn't look like it changes much because the consensus doesn't change all that much. In fact, uh, there's experiments that were done that shows uh, this dynamic character exists. So these are yeah, sort of counterintuitive yeah. observations that a lot of virologists aren't even familiar with. Uh, but the,
1: the, yeah, the, I want to ask you about the the experiments that demonstrated that. But so this 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 uh, gives me the question: Do viruses have an identity of self and other? And then within the context of a you know a swarm, let's say of quasi species, do they also have an even more sophisticated sense of like okay? these variants are part of my pack or my swarm, and these are obviously not. Do you think they have a sense of that? And is it
2: outside the cell, inside the cell? They seem to actually have a sense of that. And uh, this was most clearly demonstrated with hepatitis C virus, which is, as you know, a serious human disease. And was the number one cause of of human liver failure until uh, therapy was developed for it. But one of the problems is hepatitis C will degrade a liver to the point where it needs to be transplanted for the patient to continue living. Um, but not all strains are populations. They're called clades. When, you, when we talk about these, pop, uh, these uh, viral populations of like derived from a quasi-species, there's various clades of hepatitis C. So it is possible, for example, to get a liver that's still good from a patient uh, that has one clade of hepatitis C virus and use that to transplant it into a patient whose liver has been taken out that has another clade of hepatitis C virus in it. So you've you've actually, in nature, you can do these transplant experiments that actually set up a clade to clade uh, competition event. And the amazing observation is very shortly after the transplant, you see uh, that one of the two clades will dominate the other and the other disappears. So you do get this preclusion competition uh, displacement phenomenon occurring in vivo with human RNA viruses. That's been the clearest example of that phenomenon. For the most part, we don't have the opportunity to evaluate such questions uh, in the context of quasi-species competition and composition. But we do know that COVID, for example, is already differentiating into clades, but I haven't seen any studies of uh, what happens when you attempt inadvertently attempt to mix these clades in an uninfected or infected individual. So we just don't, don't have any information on that.
1: That's crazy. So like, you know, just to, to go on a detour for a second, in an organ transplant, you know, I would think that they would test for hepatitis of the donor, et cetera, but I'm sure there's many things that we can't see. So I wonder if uh, part of transplant rejection or, you know, uh, acceptance has to do with uh, the virome differences and the microbiome differences.
2: Well, um, I'm not sure we have evidence that relates to that. In the context of of uh, the hepatitis C and the transplants, the reason they characterize the clades there is because they the various clades differ with respect to their sensitivity to these very various antivirals. Um, and you wonder why why would that be the case if they're a dynamic and adjusting? It's because the clades have a certain stability to them. The consensus tends to be maintained. Uh, so they screen them in order to see if uh, this source of virus or this source of organ is likely to be more or less susceptible to a particular array of antiviral drugs. At least that used to be the reason. Uh, the modern uh, composition of these drugs has gotten to the point where it's less clade dependent than it used to be. So uh, the, the newer versions of these anti-hepatitis C drugs seem capable of dealing with most of the clades at this point, although they didn't used to. So that's that's why we paid a lot of attention to that issue in that particular circumstance, um, and it, but it's not usually paid uh, much attention to in the context of, of most RNA viruses, even including COVID. I don't think people are paying much attention to it uh, at this point until some some significant variation emerges between the clades, some biological variation, then people would pay a lot more attention to it. For example, the sensitivity to remdesivir. Or to some other treatment, some antigen treatment or antibody treatment, uh, then I think people will be forced to pay attention to this this kind of natural variation. But you know, these clades don't have any obvious phenotype associated with them up front. The phenotype becomes more obvious as you try to to uh, select them with various agents like drugs.
1: Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is right if you give someone uh, a vaccine. Um... You would affect the uh, the clades that are successful in mm-hmm. infecting them or not, and you would affect the uh, the. Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't know what would happen, but, but vac-
2: the vaccine. You know, the the virus has limitations on it. That's why we can actually get rid of hepatitis C with antivirals. There's only so so many things. People think that these RNA viruses are infinitely adaptable, but you know the solutions to their existence and propagation are finite, and uh, the glycoprotein that uh, this virus uses, the spike protein, you know, it has to it has to work uh, with human cells. It has to do certain things. It has to fuse. It has to perform a variety of functions, which limit uh, the variation that's tolerable in the protein. So, you know, the, the fact that it's an RNA virus to me, does not necessarily indicate that we can't make a vaccine against it. We made a vaccine against measles a long time ago. That's an RNA virus is it, that's dynamic and uh, that vaccine works great. We've had vaccines against uh, rabies virus for a very long time and uh, you know those old vaccines still look like they would work. It's because the, the solution to the spike protein, I think is finite and the antibodies capture enough of that variability that uh, the virus doesn't have much options and has to make a, a version of the protein that's recognized by the immune system. So I don't so, think it's completely plastic. In other words,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I figured it right. It's within some kind of some kind of uh, range of ability. Um, hmm. So what? I guess going on a different tact, then what what governs uh, lytic behavior versus latent or lysogenic behavior, and you know why? Do, why would some viruses, let's say, be latent in in their host for you know half of its lifetime and then when the host experiences let's say stress or some other problem now they become lytic yeah They're like that, rats leaving the ship
2: that i think is what we used to call the sixty-four thousand dollar question that is the issue that is particularly intriguing to try to understand and explain and if you try to explain it you almost always have to explain it in the context of its natural model what species is this particular virus adapted to in order to be maintained in its apparent persistent state in an evolutionarily stable uh, relationship. We're not talking about just one or a few infectious cycles, but something that usually is old as the species itself and is probably associated with the origin of that species. So what is that relationship? And we, when we step back and look at the virus with sort of those lenses on, we see a whole array of regulatory genes that are interacting with the host innate and an adaptive immune system in ways that allow it to tune into some event that will lead to the lytic replication and the transmission of the virus from an inapparent state to a new generation of host. Usually this happens at birth of the host, but it happens by an array of mechanisms, most of which we don't understand. In the context of mouse hepatitis virus, we do know that the, the mother's immune status is quite important. The mother has to transmit um, passively immunize the offspring that allows them to become uh, colonized with the virus in a way that they don't get the brain infection, don't die from it, because the mother has transmitted uh, some immunity along with uh, the birth of the the new pups. Uh, But in the context of lots of other viruses, uh, that doesn't seem to be the mechanism other things are at work, and it's somehow it's related to the biology of reproduction, the biology of uh, pregnancy, uh, and the biology of birth, and the transmission that occurs during those events. I used to study polyomavirus, another persistent mouse uh, virus that gets transmitted very efficiently from uh, the mother to the pup, and that was a completely different relationship than what I just described. That has to do with the nursing, and the licking of the pup, and the infection of the uh, Uh, developing lung cells, this window of development that occurs very early in the infection of the and the development of the mouse. That's the window that that virus taps into and replicates like crazy in those cells and sets up a persistent infection in the kidneys. It's a completely different relationship, but the overall biology is the same. It's a persistent state that gets transmitted at birth with great reliability to the offspring and sets up a long-term persistent infection in the offspring as well. Uh, so, what triggers that um, in the context of this particular virus? I think we're, right now we're kind of clueless. There's no, I know of no evidence that speaks to the mechanism by which that is happening.
1: Well, for where, okay, so if, if you have latent behavior and persistent behavior, is that directed by the virus? Um, is that its preferential state?
2: Communication between the virus and the host, right? This comes back to uh, what, what is being communicated to the virus host relationship when a newborn pup is born and gets nursed. Um, is it some shift in the biology? Is it some cell differentiation? Is it some immune transfer? Is it uh, the fact that you now have a, a new version of the host that has no immunity and has differentiating tissue, not static tissue? All these things are potentially relevant and in some cases are, are relevant. So for me, you know, I can't make any general statement on that issue. It's very complicated biology is what is what I would say. And in the case of this particular coronavirus, our understanding is pretty damn close to zero in terms of what that is and how that works.
1: We will get insight. Like, like, like if, I, if I get chickenpox, okay, you know, I get it, it flares up, it seems to go away, but it's latent within me. Yes, um, exactly. Later on, so is it latent because the virus has successfully, in an ongoing basis, evading the immune system? Or is it latent because it's a, it's a viral state of preference and thereby it, it it just wants to hang out and be latent and you know regardless of what the body does?
2: I would say the answer to those several questions is yes to all of them. <laughs> that, for example, let's take the one that we understand the best and that herpes type two. Herpes type two, um, you know, it causes, uh, it can cause both oral sores and, and can cause genital sores, but typically the genital one is a different variation of the, of the virus. But it sets up, uh, it's, it has a, a, a sort of complicated program. So it starts off as an acute replicating infection uh, in mucosal tissue, but it makes its way into neurons and it, goes, uh, tra- it has the mechanisms and the genes necessary to travel up those neurons and take up residence in the trigeminal ganglion. And in that trigeminal ganglion, it's now in the context of a neuron, it elicits a completely distinct program that puts itself into latency. And it's associated with regulatory RNAs, latency-associated transcripts, and it puts it into a very silent state. So it just sits there for the life of that neuron. And neurons are very long-lived cells, they live as long as you do. So basically you're permanently infected and colonized with this herpes virus. Now in order for it to reactivate that neuron has to pick up a signal that uh, the virus is basically just waiting around for uh, uh, that will allow it to produce enough virus uh, to travel down the neuron and uh, into the innervated cells and infect those innervated cells and uh, cause them to start making a virus like a fever blister or a sore and transmit it to to sort of subsequent host. But that's a very intricate and program that it took decades to sort. In fact, my colleague, uh, the late Ed, Ed Wagner, spent his entire life studying that relationship, and they did make progress on it, but it's one of the few ones that we do have molecular understanding in terms of how it actually works. In most cases, with most of these inapparent persistent states, uh, they don't work that way, and we're clueless as to the specifics of how it does work. But it's very intricate, and it's very much communicating between the virus and the host. In this case, some type of uh, damage event has to occur and those that communication of that damage has to uh, make its way into the trigeminal ganglion and then uh, the program kicks in to reactivate the virus and start producing uh, more virus and infect the peripheral tissue. So that's the kind of intricate uh, virus host biology we're talking about and these involve a whole array of programs and genes and functions and when you take it out of this relationship just into an acute lytic state, these things don't seem to do anything. These these genes are basically not useful in the context of a lytic replication, but they're essential for long-term persistent infection.
1: You know what thought just occurred? I wonder if um, a virus retains in its, uh, in its genetic makeup genes and the ability to be both lytic and latent. And I wonder if, if most or all viruses have both in them. We just, we I mean, don't know.
2: Yeah, I think the majority of them probably have that character, but it's pretty clear also that they can sort of get pushed one way or the other in their relationship. If they can become so fully endogenized that they become a host gene, then they're forever persistent, right? They're just fighting colonization with other agents. Or they can become solely acute. For example, influenza B is specific to humans, it no longer has the capacity to infect and uh, propagate in avians, yet almost certainly it originally evolved from some type of avian flu that was persistent and transmitted to humans and became fully adapted uh, to only being a lytic acute infection in humans. It doesn't set up a persistent state. Most of the big diseases that we uh, worry about in humans, like measles, rabies, smallpox, even influenza, are not capable of establishing uh, inapparent persistent infections in their host. The ones that have been with us for a long time, like the herpes and the papilloma and the viruses, those are the ones that inherently set up these states. And that's what makes them a lot harder to get rid of, because most of us are walking around carrying uh, some versions of these viruses in states that is completely normal and healthy. And at some point, that virus is connected to some program that allow it to reactivate and transmit to those around us.
1: But so, do, you, do you think a lot of viruses have, uh, again, whether they're silenced or apparent or not, do you think they have in their genetic makeup, the ability for both, you know, uh, you know lytic and uh, latent behavior at the same time? I
2: would say that is a, a majority lifestyle, but it certainly isn't absolute we know examples for example um t4 a uh, virus of phage is strictly lytic it doesn't have an acute uh, a non-lytic relationship so you can pass it a bazillion times and this has been done these are experiments that were done in like 40s and 50s uh, and it retains the capacity to lice and propagate as a as a lytic the same thing with uh, with smallpox you had very all a major and very minor but it never Never changed into an, an apparent persistent state because it just doesn't have the the machinery, the specific machinery that has to be host adapted and sort of capable of interacting and communicating with the innate and adaptive immune system in order to establish these apparent states. Once you lose that, it's not easy to get it back. If you can, if you can imagine that. So to me, this is why COVID is really quite fascinating because it's sort of halfway there. It's like it's almost capable of setting up an inapparent persistency, but it's not stable. It does seem to get cleared after a month.
1: Does that tell you that it's gonna go one way or another because of ongoing adaptation? Is it gonna be pushed in one direction or another?
2: If we didn't have any cultural or scientific intervention, you can just do a thought experiment of what we can expect to happen Uh, if we let this thing run its course naturally, biologically, that is without the intervention of medicine, science, culture, or behavior for that matter. In the context of HIV, if we do this experiment, what we end up with are, are the survivors are the non-progressors. They're the people that have the virus, but the virus doesn't progress into disease. So ultimately, you expect to end up with a population in which basically all sort of surviving humans are, are non-progressors and have a persistent, inapparent state with HIV, But that means if that population ever encounters an ancestral version of the human population, it will be lethal to that population. You'll get reproductive collapse of the uninfected historic or prior human population. In the context of this virus, we're not dealing with something that's so pathogenic that we're expecting that kind of immediate outcome. In the long term, um, we don't know what it does, for example, to the reproductive success of a human population to be persistently infected in an ongoing fashion with COVID-19. I just don't
1: well, know. I, I don't want to make this about you know, COVID, but the one thing I, I do want to you mention, know, I'll just mention this one thing, and then I'd, I'd really rather leave it. Not letting uh, populations travel and visit each other. Yeah, uh, if This goes <laughs> on, let's say, for a year. This could be a very potentially dangerous thing because now, let's say, I, you know, I live in Iceland, and no one's been able to come due to tourism, and now people come after a year, perhaps that could be enough time for the uh, you know, the populations of virus to diversify enough or diverge enough that they could really uh, you know, hurt other people that weren't exposed to it.
2: Well, I, I think that kind of phenomenon may have already happened, and it went in the other direction though. Um, and that, the reason I suspect that is, if you look at the accounts of what was happening in the first couple of months, at the Wuhan hospitals before the Chinese government sort of shut down all that communication. uh, You were saying that a lot of these transmissions were occurring from people that were expressly uh, infected in their lungs. They had pneumonia and they were coughing and they were dying basically. And they were transmitting the population of virus that you get out of a a pneumonia patient, that quasi-species in a sense. And I think that increases the probability that they're going to set up a pneumonia and uh, the subsequent infection cycle. But once you start isolating them into hospitals and quarantining them, which happened quite quickly, and this may have happened in Italy as well, something very similar like this, I think probably happened there. Then you end up with a circumstance in which the transmission now has to be by less apparent, less uh, sort of damaging virus host relationships, like uh, the inapparent early stages of the virus or the uh, persistent states in which you have no disease at all, which now seems to be the case with respect to humans. So that would push out a different quasi-species, probably the same consensus. But the the tendency is for that population of virus to set up more or less the same kind of infection that it came from, not the deep, long uh, pneumonia kind. So I'm suspecting that these quasi-species are dynamically much faster than you're thinking about. That they actually happen in the cycle of uh, just as soon as you isolate the pneumonia patients and then it immediately starts adapting to being transmitted by by other processes and mechanisms with the outcome being that the initial infections tend to be less severe but the potential for severe infection uh, is still there and as soon as you start letting people with pneumonia walk around and infect each other it's going to go right back to that relationship so that's my suspicion of what we saw in Wuhan and what we saw in Northern Italy and why the physicians there saw so much uh, sort of worse lung pathology, uh, in this transmission than what we're seeing now.
1: Going back to, uh, you know, one more question about the lytic versus uh, lysogenic or latent behavior. What do you think drives, uh, endogenization into a host genome? And then when that does happen, do you think that identity and agency is preserved? You know, if, uh, or, or is it lost and it just becomes part of the whole, part of the host?
2: Well, think about the the thought experiment we did with HIV you're running unrestrained in human populations. We would predict that you'd end up with a population of humans that were non-progressors. And that population is no longer compatible with the prior human populations. It's if you try to mate them, if you bring them together in a common sort of social exchange one becomes lethal for the other just like the lysogenic phage exactly like the lysogenic phage and so we do see these population expect to see sort of these population phenomena so you would say the identity that that colonized version of a human has acquired a new molecular identity that's associated with capacity for harm to peoples that that aren't a member of that same uh identity population. The group identity has changed. Has been They've acquired a new feature. And so now you see why this process tends to be acquisitional, tends to be, you know, you get more um, sort of, of these agents with time. It's not, uh, it builds towards complexity. It builds towards a more complicated group identity uh, inherently.
1: And but so has the de endogenization been observed or... You know certain um, viral fragments in our DNA or any other creatures DNA well they've been observed to to package virions again and to make an active form of the
0: virus
2: generally the answer to that is no usually when you get endogenized with something uh, you tend to lose the capacity to make transmissible virus from that at least eventually there's there's exceptions to that um and early on in this process it doesn't look like that's usually the case that that's a kind of a long-term outcome right now for example the koalas in australia are undergoing endogenization with a retrovirus that's causing leukemia and basically took out most of the koalas uh, that that were exposed to this virus there's some places parts some islands and other places that have that have been physically isolated, like you said, the populations don't exchange and they don't get exposed uh, as much to this agent. But what we're seeing is, this virus is colonizing in a complicated manner. It's not just one gene that's acquired. You get a set of things, you get a set of LTRs, you get a set of these other sequences. And it's almost like you've acquired another network that now um, controls the capacity of the virus to lead to leukemia, which is the pathogenic outcome in the case of this virus and this host. So what we're seeing is the emergence of a version of the koala that has acquired a complicated mix of this retrovirus in which it no longer uh, progresses to leukemia, but whether or not it makes virus, that's a variable. Some, Some of them do and some of them don't. And my guess would be if the habitat selected for competition with other koalas that hadn't been colonized, then you would be selecting for those populations that transmit this agent still. And that selection would exist until you exterminated that competition. So it's a, it's a dynamic process, at least the way I think about it.
1: So uh, I guess somewhat of a similar question. Um, what governs the latency period You know, when someone's infected with a virus? why why a day why 14 days why a month Uh,
2: yeah there's a a, lot
1: of people say oh it's just exponential replication of the virus it's
2: it's a lot more intricate than that for example if you take uh, like the p1 phage which is where the concept of an addiction module was first uh, sort of introduced to explain the stability of an episomal persistence so this is a, a virus of bacteria that is as stable as an integrated Uh, Phage, but is not integrated. It's episomal and the way it attains that stability is it makes uh, these gene set called uh, an addiction module that's toxic and destructive and protective against the toxin antitoxic and toxic together, but the toxic part is stable and transmissible and uh, the protective component is uh, sort of unstable or dynamic and has to be continuously expressed from the presence of the plasmid. So if you get rid of the plasmid, the host dies. Or if you mate with another host, the, um, the other host will either die or be infected and survive. But if you take a persistently infected bacteria and you pass it and just grow it without, you know, without doing anything to it, without competing it or trying to infect it with anything, you just pass it. You can pass it for 100 generations and the virus won't necessarily come out you have to do something to it, you have to shock it, stress it, uh, try to kill it maybe, (laughs) and then it makes virus. So that has a latency that's sort of very stable and depends on circumstance, it doesn't depend on time. And so this biological relationship between how long latency lasts and when it reactivates really depends on the biological strategy of reactivation. It doesn't have uh, sort of an internal clock associated with it. And in the context of mammals, the most common trigger for these reactivations seems to be the birth of offspring. Yeah, but what specific trigger is, is, is poorly understood and almost certainly quite variable.
1: But well, you're saying even, even when uh, viruses are triggered only by birth, it's still modulated so that the, uh, the offspring won't be killed by it, but will actually allow it to passage into them and continue yes. to be latent once it does. If,
2: if they are a member of that population, <laughs> If they, for example, picked up the uh, uh, the immunity from its mother, or whatever other mechanism is used to attain that uh, membership identity, for example, if they're uh, if we're talking about a non-progressor population of HIV, they have to pick up the non-progressor status at the time of birth. Otherwise, they're going to be susceptible uh, to the uh, death from that virus. So they have to pick up the they have to communicate the latent status uh, to the offspring. Uh, and sometimes that follows a brief period of virus replication as it gets colonized. That's what polyoma does. It will infect the newborn, get into the lungs, make quite a bit of virus, get into the blood, colonize the kidneys as they're still differentiating and then set up a lifelong infection in those kidneys. Uh, so what has to happen is the uh, parent has to um, promote uh, the communication of a latent state to its offspring. And then we have a very stable, uh, sort of phylogenetically stable relationship that's population specific. It's almost always species specific and it tends to be specific for that particular immune system as well. So that's why when you take these from, from one species and put them into another, they tend not to set up persistence and latency.
1: So this is now going to sound more general than I realized, but <laughs> one of the questions I was going to ask you is what what are the role of viruses in evolution, adaptation, and speciation so I know it's now the question is so broad as, you know, especially with what you know, but um, what are some particulars within that question that you think are are interesting to talk about
2: well, historically, virologists are a rather practical lot right they 're not uh, so invested in theory that that sort of prevents them from trying things that uh, might work experimentally. For example, the origin of, of vaccines. Um, you know, these things had never been, you know, polio virus had never been propagated in the uh, chicken egg before, but other viruses had. So therefore, uh, you know, you try whatever. There was no rhyme or reason to think that that particular virus was adapted to avian tissue of an embryonated egg but we tried it and it worked, or you clone it, or you make it into DNA. I mean, so there's this sort of cultural um, stance, I would say, in which you just try what works and you try to make it work even better. So when I first got into understanding virus host relationships, I just assumed that all the Darwinian thinking, near darwinian thinking, that all must be right. I wasn't working on it. I just assumed it applied. But lo and behold, one of the first experiments I did as a graduate student violated that understanding in a way that to this day is still a major violation. And that is, I I did what we were talking about. I passaged VSV in cell culture. And if you do what's called an undiluted passage, that is, you don't dilute the virus, you just take it from one culture and put it into another one directly. It's called a high multiplicity infection. Within a few generations, that virus will uh, pop out a defective, a... A sort of a version of the virus that has lost most all of the genes and it's nothing but the regulatory region that's been packaged into the capsid, into the virion but that ver- that defective is auto interfering it brings down the replication of the infectious virus by about eight logs so this is not a minor event <laughs> like wow you you really see this happen it's it's not you know you can't help but observe it what i hadn't thought of is that the Infectious virus is the master fittest type. This defective is, you know, is junk. Yet it dominated the outcome, and it has biological consequences. Because if you put it into a mouse, it completely changes the um, the outcome of the virus infection in that mouse. This is what I did as a graduate student. So right then and there, I was seeing interactions, complementation, interference, even cooperation, whatever you want to call it. You see strong evidence of interactions occurring within these virus populations. And this wasn't ignorable stuff or minor. Yet, if you turn around and you try to apply um, existing concept of master fittest type, um, you know you have to contort yourself in all kinds of ways to, to make it come out. So this was sort of the inkling that I first came across that made me think that you know, this, these viruses aren't really behaving the way I was told they're supposed to. Uh, and when, crazy. And when I discovered persistence, which was immediately followed, because when I put a defective and the infectious virus into a mouse, it sets up persistence, not an acute infection. And then I realized, well, a lot of these viruses are normally persistent. We study them for acute replication, but in reality, their more common relationship with their host is in apparent persistence. And then you really get into a quagmire trying to explain uh, the virus host dynamics based on master fittest type, um, um, selfish replicators, you know, all those concepts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That yep. the evolutionary biologists like to apply to viruses. It just doesn't work anymore. And now that we see that persistence is hugely consequential, we have to step back and sort of reimagine uh, exactly. It's not even
1: point. just persistence. It's guidance of what goes yeah. forward. It's you know, guidance Absolutely. of evolution exactly. and speciation and adaptation.
2: Guidance of population survival, right? Exactly. And we're seeing it unfold wow. in front of our very eyes. We see the power of this phenomenon in a way. I mean, it's completely stymied uh, what we thought of was a very advanced molecular science that we had in biology. We could have anticipated so, uh, this, but we we just didn't invest in it.
1: So uh, another question: um, If I set up a cell and I sucked out some of its you know, components. I denucleated it, or I sucked out like some of the machinery necessary for a virus to replicate. You know, and a virus comes along and binds to a receptor, and you know, starts its entry process. Do you think it would abort it? Do you think it would sense something's wrong? You uh, know, probably,
2: probably not. They they operate their 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 apparent intelligence comes from their more population-based behaviors, not from individual behaviors. Um, in the context of a cell, if you enucleate the cell and infect it with VSV, for example, it makes the virus just fine. It Doesn't need a nucleus.
1: Well, if you it. if you took away something that was critical, like you know, if I sucked out everything, like uh, the membrane, it was like an empty house. You know, a yeah, burglar. Even
2: then, VSV it. would probably make some virus. And, well, if you took out the ribosomes, it wouldn't
1: work. But that's if I emptied it, you know, and the burglar broke into an empty home.
2: But even it, then, you break all the way in. Some of these giant DNA viruses seem to provide all that stuff that we're talking about, including components of the ribosome. So you do get to a point, and these are viruses that infect unicellular eukaryotes, big, complicated uh, things that basically create a nucleus, transport the RNA, they do all the stuff to it, and they create components of the translational system. Uh, And uh, they basically use the host cell as a sack to accomplish the construction of all these uh, components. So you do have some examples of viruses that are surprisingly independent of a lot, but not absolutely everything. So fundamentally, a virus has to cooperate at some point with its host. And so this, this is inherently symbiogenic, I suppose, because this requires the relationship of two. And we also know that even if you go back to those giant viruses, there exists a whole family of viruses that are dependent on a host infected with the giant viruses you know the sputnik viruses they're called and they ex- and they're numerous and they're they're all over the place and they may have a big consequence because if you have one of those viruses in you and you get infected by a giant virus then uh, a completely different outcome occurs the host survives the giant virus doesn't get made it makes the sputnik virus instead so you have these viruses of the viruses of viruses and parasites of parasites the parasites and then in the context of the host cell the outcome is determined by whether or not it has a um, persistent or a lytic life strategy, and both of them exist. So,
1: so, you're saying some viruses are almost like snails; they can use the just the membrane of a of a cell as like their new shell, but they can they, do everything yeah, else. Themselves? Some
2: of them are are uh, surprisingly independent of a lot of the host components. Non- nothing is completely independent, but you can't point at any hardly any one particular thing. Uh, I suppose if you punch holes in the membrane and everything leaks out, that viruses tend not to work too well necessary. But, you know, you can make viruses in a test tube. Uh, you can make polio in a test tube. You don't need cell at all, but you need the cell components. You need the ribosomes and TRNAs and things like that.
1: Well, I wondered, I think I, I spoke to you about this, you know, if you could, if we could construct a uh, a cell membrane with the right receptors, you know, make a whole bunch of them and inject them into someone and them act as decoys for certain viruses. So... You know, the virus injects yeah, yeah. this material and no one's home, and it's like, damn it, uh, I'm stuck.
2: Yeah. Uh, in fact, I once heard a, saw a seminar where somebody proposed that there was some, uh, this was an oceanic organism. I'm trying to remember which one it was. I think it was some type of mold, a filter feeder that was actually, had these membranes that had all these kind of generic receptors on them, and they were filtering the virions out of the water and eating them. And I don't know if you know, ocean water is, com- is completely uh, uh, sort of highly uh, concentrated with virus. It has a lot of phage in it.
1: Like soil too, yeah.
2: Yeah, soil too. But apparently there are some organisms that are doing something along the lines that you're suggesting that are capable of absorbing them, internalizing them, and then eating them. So they, be- they basically are uh, a host that eats virus. Although I've never seen much more on that. There's a lot of fascinating stuff that go on in these oceanic organisms that we don't study all that much. I particularly like the, the red algae, the filamentous red algae. They have infectious nuclei that they transmit into each other. It's,
1: just, it's amazing. It's amazing the playbook of biology and all the different things it can do. It's it's unbelievable.
2: Yeah, it's really beyond what most people imagine it to be. It's 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 pretty incredible.
1: Well, um, a couple more questions here. I don't know if this holds, and I'm sure you know nothing's absolute, as I'm finding out from talking to you and everyone else, but it seems like at least several – uh, viral infections, the the tropism of the virus, you know, the tissues it infects, are also the tissues that cause it to be, you know, uh, given off to get into another host. So influenza, my respiratory cells are affected, and so I cough and you know sneeze and transmit it that way. And um, there doesn't seem to be like you know intestinal viruses that are transmitted by respiratory droplets or sexually transmitted ones that. Again, well, uh, transmitted by, why is there a matching, or am I there, wrong, is there a matching?
2: There's a tendency to what you say to be correct, but it's, it's certainly violated uh, by specific examples. And for example, measles is a good example of a virus that violates a lot of those things. It comes in through the upper respiratory tract, uh, and you know the way you see it is you diagnose it with these things in the back of the throat called complex spots. I don't know if you have ever heard of them, these yes. uh, PKI yeah. that you see, uh, they're that are actually diagnostic to the physician that you've got early stage measles. But then it just ends up everywhere. It gets into your lungs, it gets into your intestinal tract, and it ends up in the CNS causing uh, seizures later. And I think most of the pararetroviruses like uh, distemper is a very close close relative of measles. It does pretty much the same thing. It gets into the respiratory tract, it infects the gut, it infects uh, the lungs, it causes severe coughing, and, and, but how
1: does it spread? How do these two spread preferentially?
2: Well, they fuse. They're fusogenic, uh, and so is uh, COVID-19. It has the capacity. In fact, that was one of the things that uh, people were concerned about with respect to the receptor. Once it gets into one cell, it has the potential to fuse into neighbors. And in fact, we know there's evidence that that is occurring. In reality, the viruses are a lot more um, constrained by their neighborhood than people imagine like when you infect a mouse with polyoma and you see a, a a lung infection starting in a particular part of the lung as those cells differentiate, what you tend to see is that that virus infects its adjacent tissue most, mostly, and it spreads from a point of infection, and kind of like a wave, uh, although bits of this can break off and colonize, but a lot of the infection is, is happening this way, and I suspect that happens when you get into the upper respiratory t- tract with this virus, that it basically tends to move as a wave down into the lower respiratory tract. You can breathe it, you can seed it. Uh, That is also clearly possible. But the the major infection transmission where all the pathology is occurring, where all the tissue is uh, heavily sort of infected with and making virus, this tends to move, uh, move from one cell to the adjacent cell. So a lot of the progress of these diseases is associated by how effectively or ineffectively that process occurs. That's why I think, if you're exposed to this virus and, and you can trigger your innate immune system to get active, you can probably slow it way down and the probability of bad outcome is I would expect to be significantly reduced. So we've never done anything like that to try to sort of intervene. But the, my guess, based on what I've seen with respect to pathogenesis, would be that that, you know, that would be an outcome. And that's why we see such variation. Uh, somebody who gets coughed on by... A patient that has pneumonia right in the face, and they take that in, versus somebody that gets some peripheral uh, exposure into their nose from a finger, from a low-titer infection, from somebody that's apparently infected. Those are very different circumstances, and I think the outcomes tend to be different. This is why we—I think—we were seeing so much death early on in the healthcare workers because they were being exposed directly to these. Uh, these patients that had the virus in their lungs, they had pneumonia and they were coughing into their faces before they were taking adequate care. So,
1: oh, so not only a higher titer, but mechanism yeah. of transfer to the particular cell yeah. type too.
2: This all matters. And, it, and this is why the biology can be so variable. Uh, it's, it's just not like you inoculate one corner and it forms a crystal in the entire body. You know, it just doesn't work that way. Uh, and to me, it was amazed with when I studied polyoma, you could basically, once the virus, once the, the pup gets past about seven days of birth, a lot of cells have differentiated into their final state. You can, and once it gets like a week or two old, if you take that much, you can dip it in polyomavirus, almost pure, 10 to the 13th PFU per mil, and nothing happens. <laughs> Yet, if you just put a little bit in the right spot at the right time, the lungs light up like crazy with the virus because it gets into them at the right time in the right circumstance. So there's a, there's a lot of conditionality to particularly the ones that are adapted to their host as to how and when they work. And, uh, I, th- I think we don't know the specifics of this one enough to really know what those relationships are, but the fact that it does get into the gut, there's evidence that it does get into the CNS. Uh, there's evidence that it's causing a lot of damage in the endothelium. So in the sense to me, it just reminds me a lot of measles. So I don't i don't see this as being something completely unexpected you know mouse hepatitis virus causes a central nervous disease and it's used as a as a model of multiple sclerosis because it sets up a an animal that has autoimmunity later
1: so um if, if i miniaturized you and i put you inside my gut you know <laughs> what, 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 what you know you were still able to live and stuff what, what would you see you know you'd be like amongst the milieu of phages and viruses and protists and cells and bacteria and, you know, and, and is there a communication you think between <clears throat> our human cells and our virome directly, our human cells and phages and bacteria, human cells and bacteria, or do you think it's, there's like chains of command?
2: Uh, you know, I, that is such a complicated biological circuit. If you, I've thought about this issue actually years back. Amazing. Oh, good. turns out that if you look at uh, the evolution, Of the mammalian gut and the complexity of organisms that live in there. That's a relatively recent evolutionary development and the variability that you see in humans as opposed to other animals is striking. For example, if you look at uh, what was this done? Anything that eats plants, right? It's hugely different and the, the narrowness of the biome is dramatically different. So one of the thoughts is that when you had something crawl out of the ocean and start basically shitting on dirt, it started uh, a circumstance where you basically had an inert soil that became um, enriched by things that, could, uh, that had guts, basically. And this led to the capacity of soil organisms like bacteria to actually become soil organisms. that They didn't exist before that. You see where I'm going with this? This is a complicated evolutionary state that goes back to the very origins of being able to colonize soil, and it's associated with uh, gut biology at its very origin. But at the beginning, I would pretty much guess that things were a lot simpler because predation, eating plants. I mean, if you think about what what you can live on in a land that was barren versus just crawling onto it in order to reproduce, to make eggs and get away from all the predators and all the virus in the, in the ocean, for example, that would be a rather uh, attractive reproductive strategy, right? to be able to uh, extricate yourself from the habitat of predation and the habitat of consumption and, and the habitat of, of viral predation. But at some point, these organisms uh, started to carry around microbiomes and, they had to basically seed pretty much all the soil on the planet that's now capable of supporting plant life. Because without that, the stuff tends to be pretty barren. So you have this relationship in which that microbiome was relatively simple for a long time in evolution. And only more recently, with the evolution of, um, of animals that don't just eat plants because they have much simpler microbiomes. Do we I see? I mean,
1: if, uh, if, if, you know, let's say if, if SARS CoV 2 is new, and it hasn't been in humans before, except for like, you know, eight, nine months ago. Yeah. It pretty, it pretty quickly, like, you know, figured its way around and communicated in the way it needed to.
2: Well, to it came accomplish. from something something that was a mammal and uh, is also relatively new in the evolutionary scale that would be a bat. Bad right, but in,
1: in our in our guts today, I mean, what do you think the communication is like? Is it just everyone's communicating with everyone or are there certain silos and, you know, not everyone's communicating with everyone?
2: Well, you know, we used to grow mice sterilely in the lab without anything in their guts, and they seem pretty okay. Uh, it's just that in the real world, they don't do well. They die. So it really depends on, on on what you have to interact with. I suspect you could do the same thing with a human. If you have a human as has a sterile gut and you fed them the right diet, that they would do, probably do okay. And in fact, the bubble children, I think, are kind of in that state. But once you put them into the real world where... Uh, you have to fend off all this other life then you need to be colonized with the gut that has group identity and that can oppose uh, things that are harmful to the existence of that host that's when it sort of became important when you became in a social habitat of dealing with other species and other competitors and other bacteria and so forth but in its origin it wasn't that way it didn't like emerge the simple guts of fish for example if people have done this they usually have like one or two bacterial types in them. Uh, they don't. They aren't nearly as complicated as like a human gut pile And if you compare your gut to like a chimpanzee, they're, they're surprisingly different. If if you were to follow around a chimpanzee in an African rainforest and try to live off their diet, you wouldn't. You wouldn't last too long because they eat lots of plant stuff that that we just can't digest. And then they eat raw monkeys, which who knows what viruses you're likely to pick up from. If you, if you were to do that well,
1: right but but if you look at again our gut and you know someone that's out and about and you know they're, they're not a bubble kid or any of that again do you think that i know it's much more sophisticated but do you think that communication is happening amongst all players at, at, at different levels
2: well i suspect it is but i don't know of any compelling set of evidence i know people that work in this area and i've kind of wondered about this and they wondered about it but i'm not aware of Really compelling observations that say one thing or the other. I do know that, for example, if you if you examine the bilge that's illegally dumped from, uh, from boats in ports, uh, and you clone out or amplify out the viral sequence, particularly the polyoma and the papilloma viruses, you can pretty much tell uh, sort of the ethnic and geographical source of that shit that got illegally dumped uh, into from the bilge. And I'm pretty sure years ago, a group of uh, Korean sailors were identified as the source of one of these bilge dumps in the LA port. It was like 10, 20 years ago, I don't remember. Because of the composition of the papillomavirus, which is pretty congruent with the host they come from in terms of geography and ethnicity. So, But does that form a communication network or is that just a marker of origin? What you're asking is... Is this a dynamic state of communication, or is this? I'm wondering if it's just simply the, the residents that happen to be there based on history.
0: And mm-hmm. I don't know gotcha. the answer
2: because I do know that these viruses don't always play nice with each other. I mean, if, if, if when you go to India, for example, and I've done this several times, and you eat from the street stands, uh, the chances are you're going to get deli belly, but the natives don't, <laughs> the natives eat it every day right eventually they say you'll get colonized with uh, the right group of bacteria that that will stop happening to you so that might be an example of some form of communication or group identity that's occurring but what the if you if you're asking me more specifics about what i think about the character of that communication internally amongst all the many of things that are in there you know i'm i'm pretty clueless
1: well very good luis you know I could probably talk to you for another 10 years, but you know, I'm out of time and I'm sure you're uh, you're tired with all these softball easy questions. So. Sure,
2: well, they're, <laughs> they're, they're interesting questions. Most people don't ask questions as sophisticated as the ones you're asking. But uh, And I suspect you. that if you your attempt to communicate this to a broader audience, people are gonna go, huh? <laughs> when you start talking about a lot of this stuff, because it's just outside of their, uh, what they consider their realistic experience.
1: Yeah. Well, I'll try. But, you know, thanks. Thanks for participating in the book. I appreciate it. And um, uh, for people to look at more of what you've written and, you know, papers you put out and everything, where, where can they find out more from you?
2: Um, you know, a lot of my stuff is available on ResearchGate, uh, where you can download uh, the, the manuscripts without charge. It's a website for researchers.
1: Well, very good. Well, Luis, thanks for coming. And I, I really appreciate it. It's always great okay. to speak to you. I learn a ton. To you. Good luck with your project.